Hey, everybody, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, Deanna Rosenbaum, and we're going to talk for the next 15 or 20 minutes about uh, the company that she's running and a few other topics. Uh, Curum Therapeutics is her company. So, Jan, why don't you take a second just to introduce yourself and uh, tell us kind of what the idea is that's behind Curum, what problem you're solving with the company that the company solves, and then what motivates you to really solve this problem. Sure. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Jan Rosenbaum. I am the CEO, the CSO, and the president of Curum Therapeutics, which means I do um, something on the management side, something on the science side, and then um, I empty the garbage when there's no one else around to do it. Um, the company is working in the leukemia space. Um, leukemia is a blood cancer. And our first market indication is acute myeloid leukemia, which is a disease that's very hard to treat. It, it targets patients that are, um, for the most part, um, older than 50. And we lose 50% of these patients every year. And the reason we lose 50% of these patients every year is that they become resistant to the drugs that are out there. And that means that for any drug that's gonna succeed in this market, we need to get patients out of the hospital faster and we need to keep them out of the hospital. So Curum's drug targets um, an enzyme, um, actually two different enzymes that are involved in the drug resistance process. And the reason that's important is that if you have a disease where um, the disease develops resistance and develops resistance rather quickly, you'd like to find a therapy that's that targets something that's involved in that resistance process. Because if you can hit the resistance process, you can um, enhance the efficacy of other therapies um, and, and you can develop therapies that will prevent the resistance process altogether. And that's what we're trying to do. And the, the target that we are targeting is um, the IRAC kinases. And, um, and these kinases act at a, a critical spot um, in the cancer signaling pathway that the cancer cells use to, to um, enable them to survive. Uh, therapies from a variety of different modalities. And that's why we think it's important. But what is a, so what is a kindness for someone? Now you remember, Jan and I, we've known, we've known each other for a long time and you've suffered my questions over the last decade quite well. But remember that most of the people who watch this are not gonna know what a kindness is. Sure, so um, kindness. In, in, in simple terms, what the kinase and what a kindness is and how it's important in oncology just in general in the body. Kinases are very, very popular targets in cancer. Um, a kinase is an enzyme that um, is, is involved in cellular signaling. And so it's involved in a signaling pathway that causes genes to go up or genes to go down. And um, genes make proteins and proteins are used by cells to do any number of things. Um, in cancer cell signaling, the uh, kinases often become super activated. And when they become super activated, they cause the cells to go haywire. In the case of the IRAC signaling pathway, IRAC kinases are normally used in immune cells to help immune cells fight off disease. And, and so you wouldn't want to inhibit them. But cancer cells have co-opted the IRAC signaling pathway. So they've stolen this pathway from immune cells and they use it for a completely different reason. So in the context of cancer cells, the IRAC signaling pathway is used to help the cancer cells survive. 
So it's the same signaling pathway, put it in a different context, it's used for different means. And so now you've got something that the cancer cells have are using for a different purpose. And so because it's overactivated in the context of the cancer cell, you inhibit it when it's overactivated and you inhibit the cancer. And this, this is this a drug that's used with other therapeutics or other ways to treat the cancer? So that's a very interesting question. Um, initially, we'd be using it in patients that have failed other drug therapies. Okay. And so they will probably still be on some type of maintenance therapy. And so, yes, we would be using it in conjunction with other therapies. If it goes as we think it's going to go, and there are certain patient populations that will be more susceptible to being treated with our particular drug, it could perhaps be used alone right out of the gate, but that remains to be seen. So the signaling pathway is not only used in the particular subtype of AML that we're talking about, but it's used in other hematopoietic cancers. And hematopoietic is a buzzword for anything having to do with the blood, the blood system. Okay. And there's a lot of other types of blood cancers and many of them are also dependent on this IREC signaling pathway or utilize the IREC signaling pathway. But the, the, the scientific founder for Curome is uh, Dr. Daniel Starzanowski from Cincinnati Children's. And in studying this pathway, he's also discovered that the pathway is used in solid tumors as well. And, and Dan isn't the only person studying this pathway. And other people have shown in solid tumors that if you inhibit these IREC kinases, you inhibit the tumor growth of certain solid tumors as well. So we believe that um, uh, by inhibiting this pathway, we'll be able to treat not only certain types of blood cancers, but certain types of solid tumors. Right. Those solid tumors are, are tumors that are not in the blood. Mm -hmm. Those are tumors that are in other types of tissues. Well, obviously we're, Sensi Tech, we're rooting for that <laughs> to be broadly applicable. But it's also, you know, it's it's exciting to me to. Just, I mean, some of our most recent investments were all in therapeutics and two oncology companies. It's just uh, it's an amazing amount of discovery that's being translated out now and brought, you know, trying to be commercialized into the marketplace around oncology. Is this a? How would you describe how the you know sort of the market, the world of bioscience has changed? Let's say in the last decade. Uh, around discovery, translation, and commercialization? Um, I think in the last decade, it, it's kind of exploded. So if, if I think just about the ability to attack targets in cancer, mm -hmm. and if we just talk about attacking the kinase family of enzymes as drug targets, mm -hmm. when I was at Procter & Gamble and we proposed working on kinase inhibitors, the chemist said it would be impossible. Hmm. Now I left Procter and Gamble in 2009. And when we were working on kinases in 2005, we had to work hard to convince the chemist that you could get a specific kinase inhibitor. Hmm. And the reason they felt it was impossible is that protein kinases all use a, a molecule um, to help them function that is used by every cell in the body. And so they felt that because protein kinases bind this molecule that everybody needs, there would be no way to specifically inhibit a protein kinase. Hmm. 
And then the world got exposed to Gleevec and it got exposed to Herceptin. And 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 it you might got, want to tell people what those are, just in case they don't. So so Gleevec is a, a molecule that is used for gastrointestinal cancer, and it's used for certain types of leukemia, and it targets a protein kinase by affecting the kinase, the area that that this other molecule binds to, and, and it does so. Used drug pardon me. It's a very widely used drug. It's a very widely used drug. And Herceptin is a molecule that targets um, a different type of kinase, and it actually targets it by a different mechanism. But those two drugs together open the world's eyes to the, avail the, the possibility that you could specifically and selectively target these protein kinase molecules. And when you did, you could stop cancer cold. Hmm. Now, problems evolved with these drugs and that spanned a whole bunch of other drugs that attack those problems, but it paved the way to develop specific and selective kinase inhibitors. And now this is a very, very popular area for the, for the drug industry. And it's taught us that even though mother nature uses very similar themes throughout all these protein families as to how these, these different proteins work, there's ways to specifically inhibit each one that a different disease becomes dependent on. So and that provides opportunities for discovery. You know, we're, you grow up and you hear the, you know, the cure for cancer and we're gonna have this campaign against cancer. It's not like you're gonna go buy, you know, an aspirin or one thing. This is a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very complex problem. The more we uncover it, I think what I've learned just as a lay person watching that evolve is just the more we learn, it's like the more we don't know. But you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's sometimes, I mean, it's obviously humbling for me because I don't understand it, but even as, you know, somebody is, is in depth in the science and everything that you are, and I talked to a few other people here in the office about this, like it's just amazing the amount of discovery that's still left to do to really attack these things. Well, the other thing that's happened is that we've moved from classical chemistry, um, which is what drug discovery used to be. You make a drug, you test it, you change the drug, you make the drug, you test it, you change the drug, to an integration of systems biology into the process. And, and that is the process by which you look at everything that's going on in the cell and everything that's going on in the organism. So you have to think about genetic changes. You have to think about how those genetic changes influence the entire physiology of the organism. You have to think about what it is its specific in cancer that isn't specific in a healthy individual from multi-levels and how all of those things impinge on one another. So, you know, as, as Mr. Spock used to say, you can't think in two dimensions anymore. You have to think in three dimensions or four dimensions. Well, at least three, maybe more. Yeah. That's right. To be able to understand what's going on. And that is one of the biggest changes that's happened in the last 10 years. Most of us deal with, most people deal with cancer either as a, as a patient or as a, a loved one of a patient. And I think one thing I'd be interested in your opinion on or your thoughts on is uh, like, it can be confusing now. Like, how do I know that I'm getting what I should get? How's my loved one getting the treatment? Am I getting the right drug? Am I getting the right thing to help me specifically? It's, um, I think we have work to do there from just a you know, patient education, 
and even you know sort of the leveling of care across the country you know how do, how do we what, what's your opinion on things we that, that would have to evolve or get better at to, to make patients and loved ones feel better i think one of the things we have to get better at is explaining the disease process um if i just think of my sister-in-law who who has is an eight-year survivor from pancreatic cancer wow. through sheer luck and 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 she's she's going through a terrible terrible time um some patients want to learn everything about their disease and some patients want to understand nothing and so it's frustrating for the physician when you have a patient who really doesn't want to understand who just wants them to make them better um, particularly when there's nothing that can make them better and, and you are dealing with different types of physicians in the process. So you're dealing with a surgeon who has a different mindset than the oncologist does, who has a different mindset than the nutritionist does, who has a different mindset than the physical therapist does. And some patients are very resilient and some patients are not very resilient. And then you have, um, you know, uh, um, data patient Dave or whatever it is they call him, who is on the web researching his disease and, and wants to learn everything about it, and who doesn't necessarily understand everything he or she finds on the web and needs someone to guide them through it. And you have some patients who are able to advocate for themselves and others who are not. So we have all of this information that's available now about disease and we're not helping patients navigate that space. Yeah, I worry we've lost, even lost ground in the last 18 months because there's just people who've been overwhelmed with information that it appears to be you know, continuously contradictory, not in cancer, but in, just in the general marketplace. And I, I had a debate with somebody, in your opinion, I said, they said, this is the rise of experts. I said, no, it feels like the death of experts, actually. But there's this great leveling of like, I don't really know who's an expert anymore because I can find this is, I see the Twitterization of research on these preprints right. all the time. Like that's a, that's in the moment that seems like an interesting democratization of science, but in, in the end, it, it can confuse the hell out of people, especially when those things are not. You know, most people aren't reading them or looking at them, but there's the, the media grabs one of them and just runs with it, and you can find in an hour on the internet you can find another preprint that's completely contradictory. Well, and, and it's confusing for the public to listen to a single scientist. I mean, use Fauci as an example, who is extremely credible, but he will say one thing as he learns something. And then two or three days later, he'll say something that to the general public will seem contradictory because new information has come out. And so, so some people will interpret that as enlightening and other people will interpret that as he's lying to us or he's not telling us the truth. It's the glass half empty, glass half full. It's, it's how you choose to interpret this. And so the challenge then becomes for the scientists to explain new information as it evolves in a way that people who are not comfortable with change can become comfortable with change. And the scientists go to method of explaining things is to shower people with data. But people have a limited ability to amass data and to understand it. And it doesn't matter how much you simplify it 
or how good you are at explaining it. Because if, if people can't, can't accept it or don't want to accept it, they're not going to accept it. So in the case of, of COVID, a bunch of things came at society all at once. And we were trying to sort things out as the rules were changing almost daily. It's kind of the curse that we know too much too soon now. Like we, you know, the, the rapidity at which it was sequenced and understood to the degree it could be understood, but like, okay, now we understand its structure, what to do. That, that led to one, in many cases, so much information. And then yet I'm frustrated because I think about all the data we don't know. Like we don't know today. I mean, there's this whole thing in the early stages about hypertension medications, ACE inhibitors, are they good or bad? Are they make it better or worse? Right. Even today, I can go find conflicting opinions on that. Like does it does an ARP or an ACE inhibitor matter? It's like there's no data. There's no data even today. And mortality we're, we're talking about this sort of delta variant spike. We have no idea who's really dying. We don't know what comorbidities they have. We don't know what age they are. We don't know. We put billions into EHRs and all this stuff, and we are still flying blind. That's right. Because it's happening quicker than we can amass the information on it. So we need a different system, I guess. That's why if we're ever out of this thing. But I, you know, at this point, there's need, no problem. You need different systems, and you need more people analyzing it. More people analyzing it. And we, you know, as a population, we're not good at probability. Correct. The probability is is one. It's hard and confusing in and of itself, and it's easily, you know, sort of quoted out of context. And it's just crazy. So the, it's it's amazing, you know, as a as a data junkie, you know, I spent the last year and a half really just trying to track things, and I eventually just threw my hands and I said I can't keep up with it. And uh, and just the rain of preprint studies and craziness from all over the place. And I think it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens after this. What do you, what do you think about, um, so what is this showing about the regulatory environment? Actually, I think it's shown some very good things about the regulatory environment. So um, the, the FDA has, and the pharmaceutical industry have demonstrated some fantastic flexibility mm -hmm. um, in the ability to do some things in parallel, the ability to take unbelievable risk in spending a lot of money um, without knowing what the outcome is going to be. Um, to manufacture something before you knew it was going to work, yeah. that just hadn't been done before. And, and to manufacture at scale before you knew something was going to work, th that's incredible. So the need to get things out into the public um, caused people to behave differently from a mindset in drug development that I think is very, very important. But it takes a lot of money to do that. It took a lot of money. It was very it was distorting money because so much of it came. And it, you know, nobody was going to go at risk like that if they didn't have a backstop and all the sort of that, that's money. Correct. But correct. it did take, I mean, it took, so let's say, and people say, yeah, the government's a backstop and all that. But if you're the person that makes the choice to say, we're going to go pure Moderna or your Pfizer and say, we're going to go to scale on this or AZ or, you know, Anyway, oh, the government's got your back. Yeah, but you're still, you just made a huge decision and you're as wrong as you can be if you're wrong. That's so right. You're, so you're and, going to be wronger than taking a billion dollars and making a wrong thing. And, and in Pfizer's case, the government didn't have their back. Yeah. Pfizer did it on their own. But they're perhaps the only company that was big enough to be able to you do know, that. 
yeah, that's and they picked up somebody that was good. They found somebody that could do it. Um, let me. Here's an, another question: Is because uh, we talked a lot about oncology. Um, are you? It's it's interesting for me as I look at these things. I always think, I think about because I see a lot of different things that I don't fully understand. As you know, but I sort of get a sense that I am wildly hopeful. Not for me individually. Anybody can get a disease or have a car accident tomorrow. But I'm wildly hopeful that that we are at a really like an amazing inflection point in terms of discovery, translation, and scale. That we're just getting started. The digital discovery wave is really flooding. You know, it's giving us all this, this chip science, if you will, as Jeff Woodson would say. And that chip science is almost overwhelming to even get through, right? To even figure out like what's there to work on. So we have decades of things to work on. I think we'll get to a point where, you know, being able to simulate entire you know, biological systems and computers will allow a lot more discovery to advance, maybe simulate, you know, phase one and phase two trials, you know, dramatically increase that model. But there's there's a whole way. We're not at we're at the beginning of something, not at the end. That's my gut look what you think as a scientist. I would agree. Um, the the tools that are available to us now um, weren't around even five years ago. Um, the computational tools and and the the ability to test um, on the on the micro scale that enables you to test you know the amount of things, the amount of information you can get out of any one test is much more than it ever was before. So that enables you to do a hell of a lot more with less than you ever could before. Um, you still have to make the compound. You still have to figure out how to do that. But, um, and, and you still have to get some hard data. Not everything can be done in silico. Um, the models still have to be tested because you need hard data to refine the models. And, and I don't see that ever changing. But the amount of data that you can input into the models is much more than anyone ever imagined. And that increases the accuracy of the models much faster than it was ever happening before. I mean, yeah. just take the ability to visualize at a molecular scale the way people are able to crystallize proteins now so that you can see drugs interacting with those proteins or other proteins interacting with those proteins. That's ha happening on a scale that could never be done before. Um, and, and that allows you to really see what's going on at the molecular level so that you can better design things. And that allows you to see the consequences of mutating proteins and seeing how they behave differently. Interesting to see if that can lead to higher, you know, higher success rates in programs. I would, I would hope that it does, or at least you know, fail faster or learn faster and not, not spend 10 years on a multi-billion dollar thing that doesn't work. Not that it won't still happen, but, you know, that's, that's, that, that's sort of the, uh, the, things, the things that go too far that are wrong. You know, I've talked about that in the past. It's kind of fascinating. It's sort of the same computational scale and all the digital stuff that, that allows us to order food at a whim from anywhere. <laughs> it's this whole, this whole world that's created with this giant digital backplane, but I think it's underappreciated how much it impacts pharma and drug development. Because I think it's just trans transformational. If you just confirmed it five years ago, you didn't have the tools you have today. That means five years from now, you'll have tools that you don't have right now. 
No, it probably means three years from now we'll have the tools that we don't have right now. Somebody's testing it right now. Hey, um, off, let's let's go back to Kirong just for a minute. So give us without wanting to go into the, the, the gory details of of uh, you know how much it costs, but sort of what's the timeline for you know you to go through the regulatory process and get a drug to market, regardless of how it gets to market. What's the time frame? So um, the for for us in particular we probably will not be ready to go into the clinic um, from where we are now until early 2024. And that's because we're still optimizing our compounds. And, um, and then we have to go through all of the required studies that the FDA requires before you can submit the paperwork to be able to put this into patients. Um, and and that's, just, that's just the way it is. And that's if everything goes perfectly. Um, and that, that includes the manufacturing process that you need to go through to scale up your compounds as well as, as the studies. And then once we're in the clinic, because we're in the rare disease space, it's hard to get the patients. So there has to be something about our drug and the way we're treating the disease to be able to attract the physicians to want to put their patients on our drug. So one of the things that we're doing from the beginning is talking to physicians about the novelty of our target and getting them excited about what that target is. And, and that kind of engagement is already happening. And they're learning not just from us, but they're learning because there's competitors in the clinic already. So people are actually coming to us to okay. learn about this. And so the, the length of our first set of trials, the phase one trials, where you're making sure the drug is safe, that's gonna take at least two to three years. And that's just making sure it's safe. Now, if you're lucky, you'll get some some read on whether it's efficacious. And then the, the trial where you, you really hone in on what dose it's gonna be used in patients, that's the phase two dose. And that's where you really learn how safe it is. Phase two trial is probably going to take about five years. Cool. So we're up to eight already. I won't be, I won't be working in June. So. And then, then you get to phase three. Yeah. And and phase three, maybe phase two is is three years instead of five years. It, it kind of depends. And, and sometimes these overlap. It's not necessarily um, sequential. A lot of it's overlapping. Um, and, and if you go into more than one study at once, which is what we plan to do, you learn information from one from one disease that you apply to the other disease. Um, and, and that compresses the regulatory timeline. And then your phase three can take, you know, four to five years. So it's at least 10 years through the clinical trial process alone before you get approved. Now, with that said, there's a process called an accelerated approval process. Mm -hmm. And if you've developed something we call surrogate biomarkers, which means that you've got genetic markers or you've got protein markers, things that you can measure in the blood or things that you can measure in a tumor that says this correlates with getting rid of the tumor. And you can measure that earlier before you have to say, okay, the patients are living longer than, than patients who don't have your drug. Mm -hmm the FDA will grant you an accelerated approval. And we saw this with COVID. Yeah. We saw that the yeah. FDA granted an accelerated approval and then 
it was given to patients and at the same time that patient data was used as if it's a phase three trial and phase three trials were run at the same time. And then the, the real approval, if you will, comes from the FDA. That's a really, I was going to sort of pin you on that as you talked about the time frame, but you answered the question for me before I could even ask it, which I think the most frustrating people for, thing for lay people is to say, you're in your phase one, you're in your phase two, it's safe, it's not going to hurt me, I know that. Can I have it? Why can't I have it? Why do I need it now? And anything that, and that's, that I think is the one, one thing about the regulatory process and technology and all these advances that, you know, the ability to somehow, you know, accelerate hope like when there's hope you know people just to, to sort of be able to move things faster in the process but i also understand it's a long you need a lot of data and it takes time to collect the data and follow the patients and all that it's a it's the great conundrum right well you have to remember that the fda's reason for being is to not harm people mm -hmm. and and clinical trials are very highly controlled processes mm -hmm. We see people who are treated with placebos, sugar pills, whose, whose disease improves. Yeah. And their disease improves because they're in a controlled environment. Yeah. Doctors are watching them every day. They're eating better. You know, they're, they're, they're exercising. They're doing things that they should be doing. Um, so, so, and you have to prove that your drug is better than placebo. So um, uh, you, you have to show that your drug is, is working not only in those very small patient populations in your clinical trial, but as you get into bigger and bigger populations. And as you move from phase one to phase two to phase three, the number of people that get exposed to your drug get larger and larger. And what the FDA is looking for you to do is to, to make sure that as you increase the exposure to your drug by putting it in more people, you don't see side effects show up that you're not seeing based on probability because your patient's exposure was so low. The number of people that got it were lower. We can talk for hours about this. So I, I just have this whole moment. I'm not going to go much further. I'm going to say one more thing. I want to get your comment on it. I, I, you know, we did a, we did an investment in a gene therapy company about two years ago, three years ago now. And it went really well. And it's, you know, we're seeing these you know, potential cure therapies for really terrible things. And the, the Gene therapy, cellular therapy, gene editing, all these things are coming at us. And I, you know, I remember, remember Laetrile, of course, and all the, the uh, people went to Mexico to get those peach pits, was the foundation of it. It was a total sham. But what I worry about today is what I call sort of an international waters problem. Like if there's a looser regulatory environment in another country has access to the same technology or who can copy or cheat the technology we have, and they have a purported say it's a gene therapy treatment for a very terrible disease that your kid has and they're in a ship you know they're in a carnival cruise ship that they bought because there are no more cruises because of covid <laughs> they're out there and they're saying come out here to international waters and we'll treat you for this and treat your kid for this disease i mean i think there's a wild there's a potential wild west of many things that can happen I mean, as, as great as all this is there's a there's a bit of a scary side to it Yes, and, and that was, you heard about that from the early fear about what happens when generics come out. Hmm. And, and generics are also highly regulated. Hmm. You can't put a generic on the market until you prove that it is equivalent to the drug that is copying. 
Um, and there are some people that don't respond well to a generic, even though it looks like it's the same as the earlier marketed drug. And the reason for that is that the generic is combined with other things hmm. so that it will dissolve properly in the body and get to the tissue that it needs to get to. And for some people, those other things that are in the drug population, the drug preparation make a huge difference. So there's more to a therapy than just the active ingredient. I learned that with the blood pressure or hypertension generic where they put me on, they switched it and I had a lot of, just didn't like it. Had, right, right, exactly. So, I just so, switched back and they said it was just, and I asked John Rice about it. He said, that's just something they put in there, it's filler. <laughs> like, I had no the, idea that was even possible. I thought, the, well, I the fillers are called excipients, and, and yeah. they make a big difference to to certain people. Well, the, some people are as excipients to me, and I get really excited. <laughs> you know, a filler. Well, some people are allergic to some of those excipients too. So, um, my point is that drug development is is a science, and it's not just the science to identify the active component. The, the manufacturing process for the drug is itself a science. And so, so, so getting the drug to work with all the other components and getting the drug to go to where it needs to go to in the body is important. And so um, when you talk about bootlegging a drug halfway through development, the, all the information that's being done to develop the drug doesn't go with it because that information isn't released. Which is you can't get hold of it. It's very dangerous. That's that's a scary. Correct. Thing. Correct. All right. Well, we we have burned through our time. There's a bunch of other stuff I'd love to talk to you about, but uh, we have a long history of your time at P and G and the time you had to work with me and tell me explain things to me and where the honeycomb, the honeycomb <laughs> diagrams and explain the chemistry thing that I said. Ah, never mind. I'm never I'm never going to get that anyway. But. Uh, uh, so we'll we'll do some other do something down the line. But this is I just wanted to get everybody kind of familiar with Kiro and sure. there and talk a little bit about just oncology and how, how exciting all this discovery is right now that's being translated. How fast things are moving. So I appreciate it. Happy to do it. Byron, is that okay? See, Jan and I could go.